Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is sharing a message on the incarnation of Christ. Today's message is entitled, Behold, the Savior Comes. Stay with us to the end to find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Christmas celebration so far. I've seen a number of family members who are out of town and with you today and grateful that you are here and choosing to celebrate the Lord's birth here with us at Unity Baptist Church. If you'd like to just get a head start, you can open up to Philippians chapter 2. You know that we're talking about the ripples of the incarnation, that when Jesus, if you will, this this ray of light fell into this earth and was sent, that there were ripples. There are effects of this incarnation that should change you and I. That we just looked at the incarnation this last week. The context of the incarnation, the verses that come before and after, are how the life of Jesus is supposed to affect us. That Christmas is not just a nostalgic holiday. It's not just a time of mistletoe and Christmas trees and cookies and singing of songs that the Christmas celebration should remind us that the life of Jesus is meant to have ripples, impact, and effect in our lives and to change us. And so we're talking this morning on Christmas lights. This is one of the last few days of Christmas lights. I hope you've enjoyed them so far. The uh, original Christmas lights weren't lights at all as much as they were candles on a tree, can you imagine? Uh, you take, you know how dry your own Christmas tree gets when you put Uh, when you put it out for a while. Can you imagine putting candles on that? Well, the first Christmas lights, as you see here, were brought about by one of Thomas Edison's lieutenants, a fellow named Mr. Edward Hibbard Johnson. We can thank him for the lights on our Christmas tree. In 1882, he put out the first Christmas lights. He hand-wired 80 I know it's not sound like a lot when you have 30,000 on our Christmas tree here at the church, but 80, if you will, red, white, and blue Christmas lights he hand-wired onto his tree for the first time, and he stuck his tree on a rotating pedestal. And what do you do when you're the first person in the world to put lights on a Christmas tree? You call the newspaper. And so he did that, and pretty soon outside his bay window here, you have all these people coming around, and they're wanting to see this weird guy who, who put lights on his Christmas tree. And ever since then, it's been a tradition. But the truth is, light has always been a part of our Christmas tradition. We associate lights with every good thing, every holiday, every glorious event in our life. Light is just, it's something that the Bible is called light. Jesus is called light. When somebody is happy, we say their eyes light up. When we talk about hope, we talk about there being light at the end of the tunnel. Light is something we long for, like moths to a flame. We're attracted to light. It's a thing of beauty. And so we associate lights even with Christmas. In Matthew 5, we're called lights. Jesus personally calls us lights. In Philippians 2, as we're going to study here today, we're called lights. Lights of the incarnation, if you will, Christmas lights. That because Jesus, this light came into the world and he passed his light on to us, we're supposed to light up as Jesus did. That his life and his light is supposed to have an effect on us. And that there are certain properties, just like earthly light has certain properties, wavelengths and and bands and things, that there are certain properties of the light that exist within us. So the first thing we're going to look at is that light evidences itself in works. 
In verses 12 to 13 of Philippians 2, it says, therefore, when you, know, when you see the word therefore, you have to see what it's there for. Therefore connects it to what we just studied. Because Jesus came down as a man, because he said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, because of the incarnation, therefore, we're supposed to live a different way. It's the ripple of the incarnation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is affirming these Philippian believers that their faith is genuine. It's real. How does he know it's real? Jesus said in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A lot of us say we love God. Do you keep God's commandments? Love is not a feeling that we have toward God. Love is not just a desire to go to heaven. Loving God means I want to do that which pleases God. And God says, you'll keep my commandments. And Paul is telling these Philippian believers that they're willing to obey God in his presence. And that's a beautiful thing. But he says so much more even in where? His absence. And that's when you know your faith is truly real. It's one thing to try to live obediently when eyes are on you and they're looking at your life. But how does your Christianity do when no one is looking? When you're home alone, when you're in your car, when you're at, you know, you're, you're just at work doing your job by yourself, when you're on a business trip, does your faith hold up? Does the reason you obey God, if you will, is the reason that you live a moral life simply because we're afraid of consequences? You know, we'll obey when people are looking. Or is the reason that we obey is because we realize that we live our entire life under the gaze of a sovereign God, a moral God who sees us and we're accountable to him. Therefore, in my desire to please him, even when no one is looking and there's no earthly benefit for me obeying God, I'm gonna obey him simply because I know it brings God pleasure and that brings me joy. That's when Jesus says we love him. When no one's looking and I'm obeying God simply because I know that it pleases him. So he tells the Philippians, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we got to be careful with this phrase. When I read, work out your salvation, what are some of the things that come to your mind? Wait a minute, I've been told my whole life that we're saved by grace through faith alone. You're telling me I have to work out my salvation. Are you telling me we have to earn salvation by good works? Obviously not. Hermeneutics, when I teach it, I'd like to tell people they need to build hermeneutic fences around a verse. In other words, a verse may look like it says one thing, but other clear verses limit the potential meaning of that verse. And so, if you will, it fences in the potential meaning of this verse. How do we know that this verse doesn't say, work for your salvation? Because there's plenty of other verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, unmerited favor, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Titus, you know, Titus 3.5 also talks about not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So it, we know that whatever this verse means, it doesn't mean work for your salvation. So what does it mean? Work out your salvation. I think, it, I think James gives us a very clear understanding of what this looks like. James 2.14 says, he asks a question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? but he does not have works, can that faith save him? The idea, James is saying, is no. A man who says he has faith without works, that faith cannot save him. Wait, it sounds like you're talking about working for your salvation again. No, we're not. 
James explains himself in just a few verses. He will say in verse 18 of James 2, he says, I will show you my faith by my works. So we don't earn salvation with God. We cannot merit our, our salvation with God. But if we truly are born again, we're not just forgiven, we're converted. And that's one of the things that a lot of Christians, we mess up on. We think that we just, God just stamps us as you get to go to heaven. He just takes a, a Disney pass and puts it in our hands and says, you can enter in. You're still fundamentally the same person. The Bible doesn't use those terms. It speaks of conversion. The reason we do good, the reason that we live a different life is not because we're trying to earn favor with God, but because we have favor with God. Because Jesus lives in our heart, it changes who we are. It changes our desires to be like God. I'll give you an illustration from John chapter 11. Most of us know the story of Lazarus, right? The raising up of Lazarus. So we know how it goes. Jesus comes in, he, he waits four days before he goes to see Lazarus because there was a Jewish tradition that in three days, uh, the person's spirit still hovered above them and they could just be resuscitated. And Jesus won't let them think that this is just a resuscitation. Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus. So he waits four days, he goes to them, he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus gets up, they take off his grave clothes, he sits down, he has dinner, he goes home that night and he argues over the checkbook, just like the rest of us do. He lives, a, you know, starts living normal life, doing what normal people do. But can you imagine if somebody before that says, well, you know, we don't need Jesus for this. I'm just going to raise this fella. And he goes over to the tomb where Lazarus is, is laying dead, you know, and he stinks and he's with the dead people. And he just says, Lazarus, come forth. And nothing happens. <clears throat> Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus still stinks. He's still cold. He's still laying with the dead people. He's not breathing. He's not eating. He's not doing anything that live people do. Is this, is this man alive? No, he's not. How do you know? Because he's not doing what live people do. And this man says, no, 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 really, he actually is alive. He's just, he's just not getting up. He's still cold, and he's just not breathing. But trust me, he's alive. And you're saying, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. I know this fellow's dead. It's the same thing spiritually for a believer who says, no, 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 I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm alive. The life of Jesus lives within me, but I don't do anything that live people do. I don't do what Christians do. I don't long for what Christians long for. I still like hanging out with dead, the deadness, the deadness of the world. I enjoy sin. I enjoy living with decaying matter. I enjoyed dead people, dead things, dead activities, but take my word for it, I'm alive. James says, maybe you're not. Show me your faith by your works. True faith must manifest itself in works as a result, not to earn salvation, as a result of our salvation. It's like Lazarus. God himself calls us in Ephesians 2.5. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God sees us before Christ as being dead. What can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. He can receive life. God can call our name forth, come forth, if you will. And we come forth in faith and we come forth in belief and we come forth manifesting works and we do like Lazarus. We get up, we take off the grave clothes and I look back at this place of deadness and I say, ah, I hate that place. It's where deadness is. I want to be where there's life and there's, there's, just, there's warmth and there's people and I want to eat food. I want to breathe the air. 
That's what true Christian life looks like. It's a, it's a complete conversion. You are dead in your trespasses. It says God made us alive together with Christ. And God called us out of the place of death. He called us out of the tomb. And he says, now start living like, like living people. Start, start manifesting your works in your life. It says, for God, our text says, for God is here to will and do his good pleasure. What does it mean that God is at work in our life, both to will and do? He's talking about, by the way, sanctification. And you can come into one of two major errors with sanctification. One is that sanctification is entirely God. I'm just gonna let go and let God. Well, God will make me like Jesus someday. It is, it's just gonna happen over time miraculously. I'm just gonna come to church, but I'm really not gonna do anything. I'm just gonna wait until sanctification just hits me in the face and I'm more like Jesus. Or there's the other side, the other error, which is sanctification is entirely up to me. If I'm going to look like Jesus, it's just going to be a, a rigid following of rules and activities, and I'm just going to push myself, and I'm going to force myself, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Never understood that phrase, by the way. How do you do that? But I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I'm going to make myself like Jesus. Those are the two big errors in sanctification. What is the truth? The truth is it's entirely a work of God that we must give maximum effort to. You say, that doesn't make sense. Neither does the Trinity. Is three or is he one? Yes. Is Jesus God or is he man? Yes. Do I have to give maximum effort to my sanctification or, do, or is God the one giving me the will and the power to do it? Yes. Okay? So we give maximum effort to that which we understand is entirely a work of God. Yeah, nobody ever said Bible study was gonna be easy. And so it says that God is at work to will in us. God... When we're born again, God puts a desire for us to no longer want to be with dead things, but to be with live things. That's one of the first signs that you're a Christian, is that your attitude towards sin has changed. That which you loved and enjoyed, conscience-free, now it bothers you. And those things that you thought were boring in life, going to church, I mean, really? Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, giving to the Lord, uh, serving... Those things which you once, you know, kind of sneered at are those things that you long for most in life. You see it as the most valuable thing in life. God has changed. He's at work both to will and to do, to work out his good pleasure in you and I. So sal true salvation, true light manifests itself in works. Number two, it light shines through our words. Look at verse 14. Okay, or, uh, no, don't look at verse 14 just yet. I'm going to get there. Uh, it will be verse 14. When our hearts are filled with life, okay, when our hearts are filled with the light of God, it's going to show itself in how we speak. I want to give you a cross-reference first here. In Luke 6.45, Jesus talks about our words. He says, the good person, right, out of the good treasure of his heart, what's the treasure of our heart? A treasure is something that you put things into and you hide it. It's hidden to others, but you know where it is and you can get into it at any time. So the good treasure of his heart produces good things, okay? How do we put good things into our heart? It's through our five senses, through what we see, what we hear, taste, touch, do, all of that. That's how we put things into the treasure, the repository of our heart. That's why the Bible tells us, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What we do in life is based first upon what we put in our heart. Every action is based upon a fundamental belief. Whether it's a sinful belief based upon lie, or it's a godly thing that we do based upon truth. 
And so the evil person treasures evil in his heart and he produces evil things. Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When we choose to say something today, you know, maybe Mike, he offended me. You sit on the front row, you're gonna get it. Uh, Mike offended me today or something, and I reach in just to respond to what he had to say, and I just reach into the treasure of my heart, and I wanna pull out some choice words for him. What I choose to pull out is gonna be based upon what I have put in. If all I've listened to is garbage and trash and filth, and I hang out with people who put dirty things in my, in my mind and foulness and cursing and anger and frustration and bitterness and backbiting and slander, and that's all I'm around, when I go to reach in to, to respond to Mike, I'm going to say, that Mike is a no good, okay? And I'm going to respond out of the treasure of my heart, whether evil or good, which is why, friends, what our words are the billboard of our soul, when we speak words, it reveals both to us and others what we have treasured in our hearts. So when we say that we love God, but our words curse men, James is going to say later, he says these things ought not be. It shouldn't be this way. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says in chapter 3, of the tongue, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, but with it, we also curse men who are made in the image of God. In other words, we can't say, I love God, but I hate people. Oh, I'm a spirit. Here's what you'll hear. I'm a spiritual person. I love God, but I hate the church. Can we do that? Not biblically speaking. Oh, I love God, but I hate God's people. I love God, but I hate the church. So I don't want to be a part of that. So I'm a spiritual person, but I'm a spiritual person by myself. James says, no, you're not. That if you love God, you should also bless God's people, the people that Jesus died for. You know, it's like, you know, when my, when my son, he comes home for the holidays. If I love my son, I need to love his dog. Isn't that right? You know, because he loves that dog. Okay? And so he brings that dog home, big, hairy, slobbery dog, you know, and she's just all up in my face. Her name's Cora. And, you know, if I love my son, I need to love the people that he loves. If I love my son, I need to love the girl that he brings home. By the way, her name's Marie, and she's a lovely girl, and we're very proud of them. But if I love him, how can I say I love Colin, but I don't love Marie? You say, you can't do that. That's going to create problems in your relationship. How can I say I love God, but I hate God's people? I hate his church. We love the people that God loves. He says, out of our mouth comes blessing and cursing. He says, these things shouldn't be. Does a spring put forth at, from the same opening fresh water and also dirty? I mean, can you imagine going to the kitchen faucet, turning it on, getting a fresh glass of water? Two seconds later, your wife goes over to the kitchen, turns it on, and like mud comes out and fills up her cup. You wouldn't say, oh, that's normal. Happens all the time. You say, that shouldn't happen. If I turn it on two seconds later, it should still be fresh water. But yet our mouths have the potential and capacity to do that. I can be like, oh, Mike, I love that guy. I love that brother, you know. But I, I come over here, I say, but that Howard, he's a no good something or other. The Bible says it shouldn't be that way. Out of our mouth comes blessing and cursing. Shouldn't be this way. Likewise, in our text today, in Philippians chapter 2, he says that if we say we love God, if we say that the light of God fills our life, he's, he's going to say that light should come out of our mouths, if you will. The, there should be words of light. And so he says there's certain things that shouldn't come out of this fountain. What are they? He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is a fun word. Not in the English, but in the Greek. In the Greek, the word grumbling is Greek onomatopoeia. You remember English? 
Remember English class, any of you? Remember what onomatopoeia is? You probably forgot that, just like I did. Onomatopoeia is, uh, it's a sound effect. It's not a real word. It's sort of like if you remember Adam West, 1960s Batman, and he goes to punch Joker in the face. You get these little cartoon bubbles come up. Biff, pow, sock. That's onomatopoeia. So the Greek word for grumbling is, if you were a Greek speaker, it sounds like grumbling. It's the word go guzmos. You know, so I'm over here, and I'm just talking here, you know, you know that, that Todd Keelan, he'll remember, go Guzmos, that guy, I, mean, I can't believe him, something or other, but I'll tell you what. Okay, that's grumbling, when I'm just, I'm just, I'm muttering under my breath, I'm grumbling, I'm complaining, I'm upset with somebody, I'm griping about somebody, that's the word for grumbling, we're Yosemite Sam, anybody, Looney Tunes, he gets mad at Bugs Bunny, he storms off, oh, razza frazza, that little man, that's grumbling. You, had, you heard it here first. That's, you know, it's, it's Yosemite Sam is grumbling. Grumbling and complaining happen when we are not content with something that God has allowed in our life. Grumbling happens when we're not content that a sovereign God has allowed something in our life. Do we serve a sovereign God? Is he in control? You bet he is. God says even the very hairs on our head are numbered. Not that God knows how many hairs you have, but he determines how many hairs you have in your head. So if you are a balding fellow today and you're disappointed with that, you need to take that up with God. You can't be grumbling about it because God allowed it to be this way. God desired it to be that way in your life and in my life. And when we grumble about it, if you will, understanding that we serve a sovereign God, when we grumble about something in our life, we are accusing God of wrongdoing. When we complain to a sovereign God, we are accusing him of wrongdoing. Does God like, how does God feel about grumbling when we accuse him of doing wrong in our life, allowing something into our life that he should not have? Numbers 21 talks about a period of time when the nation of Israel was grumbling. The book of Numbers is so named because they have just left the land of Egypt and they are taking a couple of census. They're numbering their people. And during that time where they're kind of organizing and they're traveling through this motley crew through the desert, God is supernaturally protecting them. He protected them from Pharaoh, right? He, he, they got backed up against the Red Sea. God parts it and didn't just part it and they slog through the mud. I mean, dry land, which is impossible apart from God. And he, he causes their clothes never to wear out. You can wander for years and years and years in the desert and your clothes and sandals are still just the way they were when you went in. I'd say that's taking pretty good care of you. God causes water to come out of rocks. God feeds them from the sky with this sweet bread, this manna from heaven. You're like, wow, what an amazing God. It depends on your perspective. If, it, if God isn't doing for us according to our expectations, we can start to grumble instead. Instead of being thankful for what God has given, we start looking at what we don't have and we get mad. We get bugged that God is not providing for me as I think he ought to. I accuse him, if you will, of wrong. How is God going to respond to that when Israel accuses him of wrong? Let's look. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 5, it says, From Mount Hor they sent out to the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient along the way. That's what precedes this grumbling, is I get impatient. I don't, I don't have what I want, how I want, when I want. And it says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. That's quite often when you have people who lack biblical contentment, they look for the nearest thing to get mad at. It's either God or God's leaders, right? 
And they complained to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Did you just catch that? <laughs> it's the funniest thing. They don't even make sense. You've brought us out here where there's no food and no water, but what do they hate? The food. They, 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 when we're complaining, we're not even logical. We hate, there's no food, there's no water. We load this worthless food. We hate all that God, God, everything you gave to me, I hate it. It's grumbling, it's complaining. God, how do you think God's gonna respond to these people who are accusing him of wrongdoing? Accusing God's leaders of doing them wrong. Numbers chapter 21, verse six, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. That's a pretty good indication God doesn't like what you just did. That your people start dying off and God literally sends fiery snakes in amongst, amongst you so that he might bite you and kill you. Is complaining a small sin in God's eyes? Not, about, not as I read it here in book Numbers 21. If you think it's a small thing for God to send serpents among you, for an activity, friends. I don't know how much more clear God can make it. A text says, do nothing without, with, with grumbling. But he also says, with disputing. We shouldn't be disputing. Grumbling is what we do behind the scenes in complaining. I'm complaining here, I'm complaining there, and I'm just, I'm mad, and I'm upset, and I'm complaining to everybody. The second thing he says, do nothing with disputing. Disputing is what we do to a person's face. I'm upset enough that now I'm going right to your face. Randy, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, let me tell you how you're wrong, and I get in his face, and I get all red-faced, and we get upset, we're disputing. We're going right to the source, and we are, we're just letting them have it. We don't wanna hear, I don't wanna understand an explanation, I don't want things to be resolved, I just wanna, I just wanna give it to them. That's disputing. Also happened in the book of Numbers. This was not a good time to be a Jew. Book of Numbers, chapter 16, it says, verses one through four, now Korah, also the name of my son's dog, no correlation, by the way, I'm sure. Now Korah, the son of Ezar, the son of Kohath, took men. Okay, so what you have here is a story of a man who didn't like the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And what are you, what are you supposed to do when you don't agree with what one of God's leaders is doing? Matthew 18, go directly to the leader, talk about it, pray about it, work through it, at times, exercise the fruit of the Spirit meekness, a willing to, willingness to line up under the God-given authorities he's placed in your life. Okay, that's, that's what the fruit of the Spirit does. Korah doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit. Let's see what Korah does. He took men. So he went around and he go goosemost everybody. Well, can you believe that? No good, go goosemost Moses and go goosemost Aaron. And he just starts complaining. Do you agree with me? Oh, Gary agrees with me. Gary, come on with me. And Gary comes over here. I go to Mark Renfro. Do you believe this? Oh, I can't believe that either. And we start to take men. We gather people to ourselves. What we're doing is we lack the courage to do what the Bible says and to go to that person directly, and instead, we gather people to ourselves. If you will, we're gathering a frontier posse to execute some frontier justice. Go bring your pitchfork, you bring your torch, somebody else bring some rope. We're gonna take care of this my way. And so I gather a crowd of people together so that we can now emotionally bully somebody to doing our will. Is that how God works? That we, if we don't like something, we just go around and we, we complain enough to enough people, we gather enough like-minded, angry, angsty people, and we come up against God and his leaders and his people, and we just, we just overtake them by force? Is that how we work? Careful. I'll show you what Numbers 21 says. 
in number, or number 16 rather, in number 16, uh, they go up to Moses and they say, they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. So now this posse has come together and there's a confrontation. There is a line drawn. And you have Korah and his dissenters over here. You have Moses and Aaron and the people of God over here and they're lined up for who's gonna take control, who's gonna take power. And they say to Moses, you've gone too far. In other words, we disagree with your leadership. You shouldn't be doing this. What gives you the right? You think you have the power to... They're upset. They don't agree with the leadership that Moses and Aaron are bringing to it. And then they say, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. You know what that is? There's a bunch of us who disagree with you. Which when somebody's dissenting, they always bring up them and they. They never tell you who they are, but them and they, we all disagree with your leadership and you ought to be changing things. And so he says, we, instead of just leading the people where God is guiding you to go, we're not gonna line up under the leadership. We need to have a vote. Every single one of us has the Lord in us. The Lord is among all of us. Who do you think you are leading us over that way when honestly all of us should just come together and have a, a democratic vote about everything we do? Is that how God wanted them to work here? Careful. This is Korah speaking. Why do you exalt yourselves among the assembly of the Lord? How, who do you think you are? You see, when God doesn't give you the position to lead something, but you still want to enforce your will on something, you gather a posse and you bully people and you get your will by force. But I'm telling you, friends, whether it's here or other places in Scripture, that's not how God leads. God leads through the loving leadership of those that God has entrusted to us. But they're challenging him. They're disputing. They're telling him that, that you're doing wrong. We're disappointed with you. And quite frankly, we think it's time for a change. What do you think God's going to do? Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 to 35 says this. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. This is an Indiana Jones movie. The ground underneath Korah and all his people split apart. The earth opened his mouth and swallowed them up with their whole household and all the people that belonged to Korah and their goods. Can you imagine? It says, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, the grave, the place of death, and the earth closed over them. Can you even imagine seeing something like this? It says, and all the people who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. So everybody's like hightailing it out of there. I wasn't with Korah. Don't, don't put me with that guy. The whole ground opening up and eating them. I don't want to be a part of that camp. And so they fled, and it says, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. These false Christian leaders who followed these false leaders, these disputers, God judges them divinely. Fire is a picture in the Bible of divine judgment. Hell is described as a place of fire. Uh, the, the offer of burnt offering and sacrifice, animals are consumed by fire. It's a picture of divine judgment. God disagrees with Korah. This is what disputing looks like. And friends, grumbling and disputing will not exist in a church that God blesses. If we're going to grow as a church, we have to be committed, not just to not grumbling ourselves, but shutting down grumbling when it happens. We've gotta be a church that's willing to, to follow the leadership that he's placed in our, in our lives, whether it's a, a D group with its D group leader or, or facilitator with a, a Sunday school following its teacher and supporting them, whether it's a church, uh, you know, 
you know, recognizing and, and honoring their deacons or following the leadership of their pastoral staff or, or Brad or Theron. God has put each one of these leaders in our life for a reason. Do you believe that? Romans 13 tells us that all authority that exists, exists by God's power. And any authority that's in your life is there by God. Romans 21.1 says, even the king's heart is in his hand, and like the rivers of water, he can turn it wherever he will. Do you believe that God can change your leaders? So when we do not line up under the leadership God has placed in our life, friends, it's an act of rebellion, not against that leader, but against God. God, you did wrong. This leader shouldn't be here. Now, if that leader's in sin, that's a different question. But if we're talking about an area, we're not talking about Moses, you know, Moses is out there, you know, and he's strung out on drugs and he's got 16 wives and he's, you know, he, he's immoral with the whole camp. We're not talking about Moses stealing from the treasury here. We're talking about they just don't like his administrative decisions. We don't operate like they did here in Numbers. We do everything without grumbling and without disputing so that, number three, we can be pure, Verse 15 says, we do this, we don't grumble, we don't dispute so that we can be blameless and innocent children of God. He's saying children of God don't do that, not characteristically. He says, so that we can be blameless and uh, innocent children of God. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, but among whom we shine as lights. We look different. Not just simply different, but we live excellently, holding fast to the word of life. He says, when we behave this way, we appear blameless and innocent. Blameless is a word that just means that nobody can point their finger that you did me wrong. You're, you're living in disobedience to God's word. Innocent is a term used of metal to describe its purity. We have terms to describe metal's purity, don't we? Like silver, we call it sterling, which means it's 92.5% pure. We're not just full of lots of other impurities. I am what I say I am. Silver that is stamped sterling is something that has been allowed itself to be lined up to a standard. A lot of the silver that we would buy, we'd be over in China, Malaysia, and some of these other places. We'd go out to a village, and we don't know what kind of silver we're getting, quite honest. Uh, it's not stamped sterling. It may be full of copper. It might be half copper or something else. I don't know. But it, it may or may not be pure sterling silver. It's silver that's not lined up to a standard. As Christians, he says, we are to be innocent, sterling, willing to line up to the standard of God, willing to allow our lives to be measured to the standard of God and to live his way. We're to be innocent children. Lost people won't allow themselves to be measured to the word of God. Romans 10 tells us in verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. That's the characteristic of a lost person, not a believer. Lost people, when they won't line up to God's standard, they become something else. The Bible says they are, we live in the midst of a crooked right, and perverse generation, twisted Crooked, we studied that word before. It's the word scolios. We get scoliosis from it. Your spine is supposed to look a certain way and you get crook bent a little bit and it makes life difficult. It's, the Bible says morally we can do that. We become bent. God's standard says this, but we deviate from that standard. That's what crooked means. Twisted intensifies this meaning. It means that we become so crooked, we become bent out of, the sh out of shape to the point where we become unusable. Any of you all as little kids ever play with a slinky? Do they still make slinkies? Can you buy those things? You remember playing with those, some of you? 
Some of you other folks, well, that's what mine looked like. Uh, you get a slinky at home, and they were fun, you know. You get one of these metal slinkies, and you play. It was the world's first fidget spinner, you know, or whatever they're fidgeting with today. There's always some new fidgety thing. Back then, when I was a kid, we had these slinkies. You just bounce them back and forth, and you can get them. You watch the commercial. Remember, you would walk down the stairs. You did all that kind of stuff, and pretty soon, you realize... Slinky only does a couple of tricks. <laughs> what else can I do with this slinky? So, you know, you're bouncing it like a yo-yo. You're doing other things, and pretty soon you, you go to set it back on the shelf, and it doesn't set quite right. It's a little crooked. It's, it's a little bit off. One of those little links just won't settle down. It doesn't look like the standard anymore. And if you get real wild and crazy with it, and you start stretching that guy and that boy out and seeing what you can do with it, it looks like that. And that is twisted. It means we're so bent out of proportion, we don't even resemble its original shape any longer. It's something that is so twisted out of God's standard, if you will, that it is, it is to the place of unusability. It's twisted. It's an intensified meaning of the word crooked. It won't follow God's standard. It no longer looks like this. It looks like whatever I did to it. And the Bible says morally we can live this way. We're bent out of the standard. What is our standard? The rest of verse 16 says, we hold fast to the word of life. It's not just that Christians are, are mean, inflexible people. You have to live like me. We're not calling people to live like me according to what I think is right. We're not just being cruel and judgmental toward people, trying to criticize every way of life, criticize how you dress and, you know, every show you watch and just being critical, what you eat, how much you eat. And we're just always looking to try to make sure everybody lives up to my checklist. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about we all together as a body, we hold ourselves to the God's standard. God's sterling standard, verse 16 says, is the word of life. And sometimes people don't like being held to a standard because it can make us feel bad. And that's okay because sometimes we're meant to feel bad. Can I say that? I think one of the greatest injustices in this world to many of, this, of, of our current world culture is never make anybody feel bad. But you know the Bible sometimes wants us to feel bad. James 4, 9 says, Weep, mourn, and wail. Let your happiness be turned to sorrow. What? Is James just a cosmic killjoy? What is his problem? He's saying that sometimes when we look at God's word, we're supposed to feel bad because those bad feelings are meant to change how we live. So there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to weep and wail that our lives are not lined up to what God says they should look like. We hold fast to the word of what? The word of life. To an unbeliever, the Bible looks like this, this impossible standard that's just going to lead me down a path that's, that's boring and sad and, and horrible, and it's just going to take away and just suck out all the joy and fun from my life. But as a believer, we understand that it's the word of life. That when I live God, life God's way, there's a joy to it. There's a certain life to it. The last point here is that light, one of the qualities of light is that it looks ahead. When you have a flashlight, where do you shine it? Behind you? Off to the side? You shine it ahead of you too, right? Don't you? You're looking for the twigs and rocks, the holes, things that you might trip on. Paul is saying that he's looking ahead as well. He says in verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What's the day of Christ? It's the same thing as the day of the Lord. What is the day of Christ, the day of the Lord? We know his first coming, his first advent was Christmas. What's his second advent, his second coming? It's a time now he's not coming as a baby to save. He's coming as Lord to judge. 
He's going to judge sin. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 to 3 describe it this way. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night when people are not expecting it. They're not awake. While they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. Paul is saying that he's living for the day of the Lord. He, he, he knows Jesus is coming. He knows he's accountable to this Jesus who's coming. So he's going to change how he lives today to get ready for that day. That's what light does. He says, lest I run in vain or labor in vain. When he talks about running, he's talking about life. He doesn't want to run in a vain or empty way. He doesn't want to live for empty things. He wants to live for something that matters. He doesn't want to live vainly. Vain, vanity, it's, uh, it's the theme of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's also the theme of a book called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. Uh, not Paul Bunyan, Mike. You were thinking about the Minnesota guy with the, right, with the axe and the blue ox. John Bunyan was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, and he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And this is a Christian allegory. And it's, it's, it's an allegory that's like really on the nose too. It's not like, you know, Prince Caspian, you know, or Lord of the Rings or some of these others where you have to really kind of look and try to figure out the meaning. I mean, he just says what it is. The main guy is Pilgrim. The Bible calls us pilgrims. And he, he reads a book read by a man named Evangelist and it makes him feel really bad about the weight of his sins. And he goes to leave the city of destruction. He wants to go to the celestial city. So he leaves all of that behind and he starts pursuing the path to the celestial city. Well, while he's on that path, he, you know, he encounters a lot of people. And uh, on the hill difficulty, he runs into a, a neighbor named Faithful. And so you have Pilgrim and Faithful, and they're on the way to the celestial city, sort of Wizard of Oz-like, and they're, they're off to see the king. And on that journey, however, in their journeys, they run into a town called Vanity. It's a place of emptiness. It's the home of Vanity Fair. It's a place where they celebrate uh, just the, the, the buying and selling of things and the enjoyment and the pleasures and eating and drinking and festivity and music. And it's just a place where you can sit back and relax and not pursue the celestial city. It's just a time to enjoy what your creator has given you and you forget about why you're actually here. And there's a lot of people who have forgotten. They're all, the people in Vanity Fair, they're only concerned about how they dress to the look a certain way. They're only concerned about buying and selling and increasing their profits. They're only concerned with how things taste, how things smell, uh, how things sound. It's all sensual. It's all earthly. And it's just fun. It's just enjoyable. And it's meant to distract pilgrims on their way to the celestial city. Well, these two guys, they come into town, they stick out. They're not all dressed up. They don't care about all these things. They don't care about all your finery and your good foods and your, your, your fancy things that Vanity Fair has. And these people get a little offended. Why are you not living like we do? And that's what happens in the world, isn't it? When we don't live like the world does according to their values, they say, what are you, holier than thou? You know, and they, they start to despise you. And this happens to them to the point where they brought him up before Lord, before Lord hate good, right, to be tried, and faithful is executed. It must be a German fairy tale or something here because it's dark. I mean, his brother gets killed. It's what vanity does. It consumes, and it wants everybody else to be consumed with the things that you are consumed with, and Paul says, I won't be that way. 
I'm going to live for eternal things, lest I run in vain, lest I get ensnared in Vanity Fair where I only care about protecting my 401k. I only care about taking great vacations. I just care about what I dress and the fanciness of my car and increasing my earthly portfolio. That's Vanity Fair. These are not bad things, but they're ensnaring things, and they prevent us from pursuing the celestial city. Paul says, I won't do that lest I run in vain. Instead, I'm going to work out my salvation. Instead, I'm going to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Instead, I'm going to be willing to stand out as a light in the darkness. Instead, I'm going to live blameless and innocent because there is somebody whose eyes are on me at all times, and he alone is the one that I want to please. I pray that you're on the same journey as Pilgrim. Friends, let's do that journey together. Let's not get caught up in Vanity Fair. This is a tough Christmas message, isn't it? Because we just all got a whole bunch of things yesterday, didn't we? Uh, They're not bad things. I'm not condemning Christmas gifts, but we don't live for those things. There's a big difference. We don't run in vain. Let's close this morning in prayer. Father, we just thank you today that you have given us your word. As our text has called it this morning, Father, the words of life. These are not words that ensnare us. These are not words that hold us back from our greatest good, from living our best life now. These are words that show us what our best life now is, and that is living obediently according to the standard of the word of life. God, I pray that each one of us would take seriously that call. God, that even though everybody around us is dressed the same way and does the same things and has the same habits, has the same values in life, God, I pray that you would give us the wherewithal as as faithful and pilgrim did not to be pursuing those ends which are temporary and shallow and ensnaring. God, help us instead, as Paul did, to run unhindered toward the celestial city. We ask this in Christ's name. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.